Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. You sometimes have to look outside the box to get to where you want to be. You haven't got to be a purist. Today I'm talking to David Thomas, who has had a successful career in the Royal Air Force, including flying with the Red Arrows. He's now an airline captain with TUI, the global holiday company, and flies a Boeing 737. David's a keen cyclist and a photographer and lives with his partner Nikki and two children, Elliot and William. And Nikki's other grown-up children, Jack and Tom, twins, are both autistic and they're all an important part of their lives. Welcome, David. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you. Thanks very much, Andrew, and really appreciate you having me on. I'm, I'm looking forward to it too. So you joined the Royal Air Force straight from school uh, as a junior technician. Tell me a little bit about what you were like at school and what was it about the RAF that you wanted to do? So at, at school, um, I was into lots of sports and mainly science as that was my kind of background, maths, physics, chemistry, like the standard three at A level. And from a pretty early age, and I don't know exactly why but I always was interested in aeroplanes and wanted to fly them in fact I was a holiday in Corfu watching the aeroplanes fly into the airport just from the beach and I thought that's what I want to do and that was about 12 13 and from there kind of crafted my education around getting into flying an aeroplane and commercially that was quite hard to do it's quite expensive to get a license from school and to learn to fly as a pilot so the the obvious choice was to join the Royal Air Force so a lot of my focus in school was gearing myself to join either from university or after A-levels and I decided I I didn't want to go into university and I wanted to kind of fly jets in the Royal Air Force and that's kind of where where my path if you like took me my decision points took me through school. So was there a, one event you can think back to, whether it was an air show or something on the TV that first sort of planted that seed? Because it, it sounds as if you, once you caught that image in your mind of what you wanted to do, you were pretty single-minded and focused on, on achieving that. Probably was something on TV um, or, you know, I, I live quite close to the airport in Newcastle. And as I said, when I was on holiday once, I just was watching these aeroplanes landing continuously in, in Corfu. And I thought, actually, that's what I want to do. You know, I want to fly. I want to fly an aeroplane. And there was back in the day, there was lots more kind of exposure to aeroplanes on TV. There was air show programs at the weekend. There was Tomorrow's World. You know, there's a lot of technology on TV which I guess has now moved online. But um, there was a lot more... When it was on, it was like a wow moment. Like, wow, look at that. And the the Air Force was a lot bigger in those days. So I think it was a gradual process, but I kind of boiled it down to, yeah, that's what I want to do. That's, what, that's, that's where I want to be at. So you left school and you went to RAF locking as a, as a technician for electrical uh, communications. How did you feel on that first day? You'd sort of, you were now on the next step of your journey. I applied to be a pilot after A-levels and I didn't do that well in A-levels. I was a bit disappointed with how I did. And 
that was like a first reality check in life. I thought, actually, you know, of options are now not available for university. So there's, there's, you know, we're in, like a secondary option now is to join the Air Force straight away. So I applied to be a pilot straight from um, sixth form, and I didn't get in because I was probably a little bit immature in life. I hadn't traveled massively you know just with the competition that was going for the jobs you could just see these guys were just you know head and shoulders in terms of life experience so that was aged you know 18 19 so the air force said come back in two years thanks but no thanks but come back in two years so i i joined i joined anyway as an airman and uh that's when i went to uh, after kind of the initial basic training i went to RAF locking near western supermare and uh, how did I feel? I was um, I was really excited. I was pleased. I was in the Air Force. I met some great lads. That was on the, still in touch to, to this day. Real close bond because we were together for you know a year and a half, and it was almost continuous assessment through what was effectively an HNC. And from there, we went into the big wide world of the Royal Air Force. And that was effectively two years had lapsed. And I reapplied to be a pilot. Um, it was actually on day one, day one of my new yeah. It was it was day one of my new job at um, a place called RF Rudlow Manor, which is near Bath, uh, Caution, Melcham. So, um, so I, I reapplied to be a pilot, and it was about six months later, seven months later, I got uh, I got to go to RF Cranwell, and that was the start of pilot training, effectively. So did you learn anything about your own sort of strengths and weaknesses during those two years? Because you're sort of discovering who you are, aren't you? You've got, you're quite single-minded over what you want to achieve. But what did you learn about yourself? I, I definitely learned independence. I was either taught independence from, from the Royal Air Force because you had to be, really, a little bit. Um, and I, I, I learned I could, I could definitely stand on my two feet and I was certainly more self-confident going for what I wanted to do the next time to be a pilot. I was certainly more confident in myself and my abilities. And I discovered that on the way, just through, you know, the journey of being on a course out of my comfort zone with people I didn't know in a place I'd, I'd, I'd never been before in my life. And I learned kind of a resolve and resilience to kind of not not give up, you know, to continue to focus on what I wanted to do, you know, without stepping on any, anyone else's toes, and to be part of a team, you know, to to work to work with a team and to use the strengths and weaknesses of that team, uh, and to talk to people. We all went through some challenging times in those two years. It was all very new. We weren't paid a lot, but we got by, you know. It was, this was the days before internet and before mobile phones, and it was um, it was a different age then, but you learned to cope, and that's what I learned, really. I learned to cope. So then you, your training then took four years. Tell us about what did the training involve? Initially, to be, a, to be a pilot in the Royal Air Force, you have to be an officer first. So the officer training for, was from August 1991 till December 1991, and then I was an officer then, and then from there I went to... Uh, flying training on ba basic aeroplanes initially, RF Swinderby, and then to different advanced aeroplanes, working up to the Hawk aeroplane, which is what the Red Arrows fly now. That's the advanced train of the Royal Air Force. The training itself, yeah, it's about, on paper, it should be three to three and a half years, but due to various cutbacks in, in the Royal Air Force, the, there was a, a major training base closed. There was two RAF Valley, well, in fact, there was three. There was RAF Valley, RAF Broadie, and RAF Chivener. When I went through, it was just Chivener and Valley, but then Chivener, RAF Chivener in Devon closed. There was only one place to go for the next course. And from, you know, 
an input of say 30 guys that went to four four on a course so that caused a massive backlog in my training so i had to I had to wait instead of a, a week or so it was two years between one course and the next course and so in those two years i, I was effectively a holding officer in, in a kind of a job which just required somebody to be in uh, not an official post so but i, I used that time to, to my advantage i went to Royal Air Force Finningley, which is now Doncaster Airport, um, which I fly from now, ironically, um, from time to time. But yeah, so I went to RF Finningley and I, and I held with a unit that uh, trained uh, what's known as a forward air controller. And they're normally Army uh, personnel or Air Force or Special Forces. And they, they operate on the battlefront quite near an enemy position. And they would talk to an aeroplane from the ground to the air and then talk the pilot of the aeroplane onto whatever the target may be. So that's a forward air controller. So I, I was at the school of forward air controlling. Basically, you know, I was a dog's body, really. I, I did all the bit of driving and, you know, all the jobs that no one else wanted to do, but it was great because I met I met so many people. You know, um, a lot of special forces people came through there. I would never meet them normally, and people from you know all walks of the service life. And that year was really beneficial to me, and I think that was the difference between my success in the next role, if you like, as a fast jet pilot, because I, I learned to talk to fast jet pilots. So, you know, and I, and I flew in the aeroplane myself. I flew in the Hawk and I, I was given that position. Yeah, I was given that break, if you like. There was two guys who really looked after me and I'm grateful to them because that year was a fantastic year. Even though it was kind of marking time in my career, I used the time to help me later and later down the road. So that was a really good year at... Uh, at Finningley, and then from there I went to Valley itself, where I was on the course. It is interesting, isn't it, how um, those times which seem like a pause in a career actually really pay off in the long term. You never know where that break's going to come from. You know that 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 year, well, the two years actually, because I was in and around the aeroplane, I was going to fly as a student, so it was no pressure on me. You know, I could just soak it all up, ask questions, and I met a lot of people. And uh, this is where I kind of got interested in other people. You know, from a 21-year-old who's just focused on the next 24 hours, actually the blinkers came off a little bit and there's a lot of people out there with a lot of skills and you can learn a lot from them by just talking to them, just talking to them and, and hanging out with them and, and, and observing what, what they do and how they operate. You then finished your training and I'm just wondering if there was a moment, perhaps towards the end of those four years, and and these moments come along, I think, for, for most people at some point where you just think, I'm just in the right place doing just the right thing. Was there any moment like that for you? Yeah, probably when I graduated, you know, from RAF Valley with my wings as an RAF pilot, albeit that wasn't the end of the journey. That was the start of another journey to be effectively a Harrier pilot, which was my trade. That was when I thought, well, actually, this these last, you know, it was five years, I think it was, wor it was worth all that effort and, and worry. But it was such a narrow road, you know, there was a lot of people started off in, on the journey in 1991 with me, wanted to be a pilot. And again, they've they've lived their life almost to, to do that, committed to it. And for whatever reason, they fell by, by the wayside. Fantastic. So then you went on to fly Harriers across Germany, UK. Um, just just describe what it's like for people to be to be up there flying, flying a Harrier. Any moments that, that spring to mind? Well, it, it, it's sometimes you have to pinch yourself because um, you know, just an, I'm just a normal guy from Newcastle, a normal background, and 
as I said, it was quite a long journey to get to to be in a in a seat of a Harry. And again, to learn to fly a Harry was almost a, a year's course. And then I went to my operational squadron out in Germany. And then you do kind of a month of of of, of training again on the squadron to to fly with the guys and to be what's known as NATO combat ready. So you're now an asset within NATO to be used and deployed. So once I was combat ready, here we go. You know, this is the real the real deal. And operationally, we were involved in the peacekeeping in Bosnia and uh, Kosovo. I wasn't involved in the actual conflict. I was there before the Kosovo and then after. So I saw the and, and Bosnia the after. So we, we used to fly out of a base in uh, southern Italy near Brindisi and across the Adriatic into, you know, the former Yugoslavian You'd be leaving Italy and then flying over a small bit of water and looking down on effectively what was a war zone. And there were villages with the houses, uh, with the roofs off, you know, fire. And you could see the devastation. And that really, that's when it really hit me what I was involved in. You know, the, 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 you could just have empathy with the people on the ground and what had gone on there. And you could see it through, you know, from the altitudes we were at with binoculars. You could see quite clearly there's a lot of buildings devastated and, um, that was probably something I'll never forget, seeing that for the first time. It's a lot to come to terms with, isn't it? And as you say, not only seeing that, but also the contrast from where you were based. And as you say, a short flight, you know, and you're seeing third world uh, devastation. And then you go back to land in Italy and then you're back in, your, you know, the, the modern world again. You think those poor people. But then, then again, you take a sense of pride about being, being a NATO uh, asset in 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 the theatre and do, doing a job that you're asked to do, you know. So you, there was an element of you know pride in doing that, you know, being being on on scene, if you like, to, to fulfil that peacekeeping role, which was the the job at the time. And were there any sort of other sort of challenging moments? I guess technically, I think um, flying it flying around at night on night vision goggles, which I'm demonstrating you now, like two toilet tubes uh, through which you see the world. That that was quite well it was fantastic i loved i you know i love flying around at night in a harrier with night vision it was just amazing but then again we we uh, the uk was deploying to the royal navy carriers so we had to learn how to then fly onto a royal naval carrier doing that for the first time was that was probably the most because it's vertical you know vertical landing you you, you learn to do that in harrier but then you're doing it onto a moving surface for the first time with a lot of people watching uh, and you've never you can do it in the simulator, which we did, but it, you know there, there was no kind of demonstration of you just did it, and that that was probably the hardest part was landing on the carrier for the for the first and you know the, the subsequent times after that because there's not much room for mar you know margin for error. And so, if that aerial manoeuvre wasn't enough, you decided then you'd uh, become a display pilot with the Red Arrows. How did how did that come about? So, um, as a kind of career pilot in the Royal Air Force, you you, you do a, a tour of duty, which is normally three years, and then from there, there's a decision to be made: either you go on exchange to a NATO partner, or be a test pilot, or stay and do the job you're still doing, or become an instructor on the within the Harry or whatever aeroplane you're flying, or options to join the Royal the, the Red Arrows. And I just about amassed enough experience to to apply, and I thought actually I'd like to do that. So. I applied uh, 2001 and went through the selection process and again amazingly I was selected to be to be a Red Arrow so a, a great uh, you know again 
a, a fantastic privilege, something I'll never, ever forget. It was a real privilege to be part of that, that organisation. And presumably the level of skill and the accumulation of experience sort of is pushed up several orders of magnitude with some of those manoeuvres? Yeah, there were a few sleepless nights, Andrew, I can tell you, learning all the manoeuvres for the first year. It was really hard, technically challenging, but also personally as well. You've got to kind of dig deep and find that resilience and believe in yourself. People around you are telling you you can do it. You know, you wouldn't be in the team if you couldn't do it. But you have to make sure you can, you know, uh, live up to the expectation. And um, again, it's worth all the hard work, you know, because it pays off. But it, it, it was an effort to get there. So it, it, in each of these steps that you've described and, and this one, which we'll explore a bit more, you, you are stepping out of and then expanding your comfort zone in, in the sense that you're you're pushing yourself to become more skilled, better at fl- flying and di- the different sorts of planes and all, all the stuff that goes with it. Yeah, well, being, being on the Red Arrows was, I would say, more of an ambition than a career move. Because in the in the Royal Air Force, there's kind of a very much a staged and known process to go up the ladder in terms of rank and responsibility. Being on the Red Arrows is not seen as a career move, really. In the well, in my time, it wasn't seen as a career move because I wasn't in charge of anything apart from myself. You know, I wasn't showing any leadership. So when I was promoted on the Red Arrows to the next rank up, which is was squadron leader, uh, at the end of that my time on the Reds, I went to a job where I was to demonstrate leadership. It was actually in a ground job. I was in a naval headquarters in Portsmouth. So I was I was in back with the Royal Navy. So that again, that was a new challenge. No flying, working with a new service in a place I'd never lived before with a new job. The job had never existed. So in terms of flying skills, definitely sharpening them going to the Reds. But that's in just pure flying. Operationally, you know, I lost time being on the Reds because while I was on the Red Arrows, people were flying Harriers in the Gulf and they were getting more experience operationally, which really counts for in the long term. That's what you want. You want the operational experience of being deployed overseas to to, to use that in, in your future career. So I fulfilled an ambition going to the Red Arrows. I, I wouldn't say it kind of sharpened, you know, it enhanced my career. But in terms of flying, it was it was, you know, the purest flying I've done. Yes. And and is there a moment with the Red Arrows that you look back on and think that just sums up what I was doing and why I was doing it? So in 2002, it was the Queen's Golden Jubilee. And we were looking to fly down the Mall in formation with Concorde, which was a big national big national task you know the, most of the royal air force in fact not if not all of the royal air force flew down you know there's a huge formation and we were last with concord so sitting on concord's wing having watched it on tomorrow's world with raymond baxter and all those you know you, you think here i am it's just this is just unbelievable this is i'm doing it you know it's, it's happening and that's probably a moment which was will never happen again so that's probably a moment in time of many, many moments. But I think, I think on the on the Reds, it was a real privilege to be part of the organisation because it wasn't about me. It was about the red suit and the red jet. You know, that's what people associate with the team. It's not the individual necessarily because the individuals change, but it's the identity of the team. And I got to meet people who were quite disadvantaged in life for whatever reason, and sometimes very disadvantaged. And because I was able to, or we were as a team, able to offer some time to talk to them, to offer them some, you know, some a brochure or a souvenir or to sign or have a photograph taken with mums and dads. You know, that meant a lot to them. 
that meant a lot to them and and effectively it was just it all it was was my time which was effectively free and nothing but to them it was it meant a lot and in the red arrows you're very much in the public eye from the moment you leave whatever building you're in in the public to you you are public property which is part of the job which is great it's fantastic and when you meet a lot of people who are disadvantaged you actually realize how lucky how lucky you are in life uh, you know and you really start to that's when i really start to appreciate my journey to where it got to to, to that point because you know there are a lot of people who are not as lucky and don't have the opportunity for whatever reason either you know just timing you know just pure timing a lot of people miss out on things just because of timing and that's very unfair or um social disadvantage and meeting a lot of people like that you know uh, that that's what i'll take away from the team was the ability to give somebody your time and make a difference to them and that's probably what I'd, the flying you know was fine you know for me that was that was i'll remember but not everyone saw the flying it was only me in the airplane most of the time but on the ground that's what i'll remember so you spent some time as an aviation staff officer, uh, as you mentioned, and then you joined Chewy Airways. T- tell me about that that little journey. And, and I mean, there are some really obvious differences, I guess. Yeah, huge difference. I mean, there's a complete life, life change there. So I, when I was a staff officer, I got to a point in the Royal Air Force, my kind of um, career contract, if you like, a decision point was to be made when I was age 38, whether I sign on to stay with the Royal Air Force for a period of time, which would take me to 55, and then follow a career journey, or or leave. And that was a mutual agreement. That's what we, you know, that was we, the agreement. So I kind of, bit of self-reflection, and I thought, well, actually, you've had a great time to date, and I've achieved everything I want to achieve. And, and I can probably see my limitations moving up the chain. I probably, I can see the competition. You can see... Who's going to make the you know make it up the up the ladder if you like, and I'm going to probably top top out at some point, and I'll make the decision to go now and 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 follow another path, which is in the airline world, and also to vote for a little bit of domestic stability. You know, you can imagine deploying overseas and moving house, and all all the unsettled times that families have sometimes in the armed forces. I chose on balance; it was probably better to vote for stability. So. I'd had I'd already had my airline license. Uh, I'd done that through self study, and uh, and the flying experience, which I wouldn't have got at eighteen, the flying experience I got through the Royal Air Force. So the hours, the cost, if you like, was my my career. So I, I had the experience to to apply to an airline. So I applied to a few. Actually, the first job was with a company called First Choice, which became part of TUI. But yeah, it's. Um, that was 2006. I got a job with uh, with First Choice based out of Manchester. And Nikki and I settled down and had children, house moves and all of that. That You know, a totally different life. And that's probably another big marker in my life is the adapting from being in the military to not being in the military. And I didn't realise while I was in the military how much of a bubble I was in. Very protected you live on the station, medical care is all taken care of, you know, all, all the people are almost the same demographic. There's no crime. There's, you know, it's all very safe. It's, a, it's away from society. And when you leave that and go into what is the normal world, I was the square peg in effectively the round hole. I was out of step with the world for probably, I would say, three to five years. And I couldn't work out initially what was 
why why was i feeling this frustration didn't didn't wasn't in step with the world what you know i'm having a queue what why am i queuing you know for you know what what is a queue we don't queue uh, it's just little things like that you know that add up in your day and you think it's actually me i'm the one who's out of step here with life and it took quite a while to come off that and reacclimatize to the world it, it's a culture shock it's a culture shock isn't it yeah totally total and it, you know probably mental health awareness is probably a big thing now and um it's probably that was probably my moment i don't think i was depressed but i definitely had a mental health blip if you like about how my stability and my general well-being albeit i was an airline pilot and you know i was going through the motions there was something just quite not there and it, and it was me it was me acclimatizing to the world you know you add that to you add the stresses now of a leaving a career so that's stress number one getting married moving house having a new baby all i had to do was die and i had i think all you know i had all five life stresses there so there was actually a lot of life stresses there which was just part of leaving the royal air force but actually they take they took a toll and how did you sort of work your way through that was it time or was it talking or or what it was combination of both time and talking because you know you said you know my wife's got two autistic boys who have challenging behavior and i i came into their lives when they were nine ten and again you realize there is a whole part of life which you have no idea about and uh the, the two boys, Jack and Tom, we used to take them on holiday. And again, as a 21-year-old, if you had told me that was going to happen, I would never, you know, never cope with it. But through life and the people you meet, you, re you can accommodate different things in your life and take them in your stride and it becomes a no, you know, not a problem. So I think Jack and Tom actually taught me a lot about life. So if you just chill out a little bit, it's actually it's actually okay. And so Nikki and I went on a, quite a journey with Tom and Jack through their, their their kind of teenage years. You can imagine the normal teenage hormones kicked in and quite challenged behaviour and the problems with sourcing provisional care for Tom and Jack when they went from child to adult. You know the politics of that in the modern world, massive challenge. And Nikki's obviously that's taken us on. So between the two of us, you know we we just talk things through, and that's it's important to do that just to talk and not bottle it up because if you're feeling it i can guarantee you someone else is probably else is feeling it or if you've got if you're the one in the room with a question thinking I've, i don't want to ask this question because it's a stupid question you know there's no such thing as a stupid question because somebody else will be thinking the same thing and that you know that that comes with confidence i think in life but just don't, don't sit in silence you know don't be slow in coming forward i think that's absolutely right isn't it and the other thing it makes me think about is with work and when you get to you know a, cer a certain position with responsibility in, in whatever career you can't divorce yourself from the rest of your life you you bring your whole self to work with the challenges of the workplace of your home life or family life because they're all wrapped up in you as a person and that's why i'm so pleased with you know organizations increasingly thinking about the whole person at work definitely it's 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 so important and we've come a long there's more work to do but we've come a long way to to get rid of that stigma of anxiety mental you know all this these problems that people have and in, in, in my job you know i go to work now at all times of the day and night 
you know, my next flight is through the night when everyone's asleep. And, you know, you, you've got to manage your life around that and be rested to go to work. And, you know, it's difficult sometimes to divorce yourself from any problems at home, which you then may take to the workplace, whichever that may be. And in in my airline and across the kind of European pan airlines, we've, we've now got a, an organisation called the Peer Support Programme, which is, it's, it's, it's set up by the airline, but it's sponsored by an independent third party. In our case, it's the, the Centre for Aviation Psychology. So there's a cadre of pilots within my airline who are available on the end of a phone to talk to somebody who would want to talk about anything. And it's completely and utterly independent. From, the airline don't know. It all goes back to this third independent with a clinical psychologist who's the the supervisor he, he he's kind of my reference if you like not the airline so that's available for for pilots within and it stems a little bit from the german wings accidents you know we remember the the, the guy who had a lot of so it was it was the downstream effect of that so there is there is options available for people to talk but it's whether they take that you know it's whether they take or they just talk to their mate in the pub whether they want to take some kind of semi-professional help or they just do it informally and i think with what's going on with COVID and the, the pressure that everyone's feeling. I think there's a lot of downstream mental health issues to come out yet. So, I mean, when you look at programmes like SAS Who Dares Wins, you've got these roughy-tuffy soldiers who've been there, seen it, done it, and one guy, Jason Fox, who, you know, he's the champion almost for mental health because he, he, he's been through it, you know, he went, and you listen to him and you read his biography and he's been to the depths of the depths and he said look you know why am i feeling this and let's analyze why why am i feeling like this and once you start feeling why and asking those questions you get answers which provides light and i think it's great that people like that do that because it takes away the stigma you know it can happen to anybody exactly exactly it can and and being vulnerable in a safe way at work either with others as you say or or on the end of a phone is important in terms of how we manage ourselves in the workplace and, and actually sometimes set an example for our colleagues Be, being open and vulnerable at times can actually have a really positive effect on a team or on an organization too can't it i think you know my 21 22 year old self going through what you know university you think you're you think you're unbreakable you know, you think you think you're absolutely bulletproof. You know, you, and you don't have these problems. And knowing, I, I wish, I wish I could transpose my head now into my old twenty-one or twenty-two-year-old, and I would be a different person. What What would be your advice to your twenty-year-old self? Do you think? My advice would be to n- never give up. That's probably my advice: is ne- never give up because opportunities you might have your plan a i want to be a doctor physicist nuclear whatever whatever it may be can be anything um but sometimes you you hit bumps in the road and i've hit a few bumps in the road for whatever reason you know ability circumstance beyond my control and it's not so much the bump in the road it's how you deal with a bump in the road and you get up and go again and perhaps go around to plan b which maybe maybe get back to plan you might not take that job that you you wanted you might take another job which is a stepping stone to the job which gives you the experience so sometimes you have to kind of maybe just go around the problem before you get to where you want to be and just you know never give up and stay flexible because you sometimes have to look outside the box to get to where you want to be you haven't got to be a purist that might be of more value whereas 
I think you've got to broaden broaden your horizons. But yeah, never never give up and stay flexible because things happen and you just have to get around them. Yeah, that's right. And actually, they add value as you as you sort of highlighted as you went through. So. David, that's been a, just an absolutely fascinating chat and conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed it. That's a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.